Emergency Medical Minute presents Mental Health Monthly. Substance-induced psychosis, the agitated geriatric patient, manic episodes, paramedics, nurses, mid-level providers, and physicians in the ED all regularly have to manage patients with psychiatric conditions, often with limited training and resources. In this series, psychiatric experts keep it real, raw, and relevant about what you need to know to successfully care for these patients in an emergency setting. Welcome back to this second episode of this special two-part mini-series featuring Drs. Ricky Dollywall and Nadia Haddad. In this episode, they will continue discussing the different treatment modalities for substance-induced psychosis. So from a provider perspective, whether that be you know pre-hospital or ED or inpatient, what are some of the interventions that you think that we should be considering for these folks that have the underlying concern for a substance-induced psychosis? So we treat uh, substance-induced psychosis similarly to other types of psychosis, which is an antipsychotic. Usually, we'll start with a second-generation antipsychotic, and usually in agitation, we're looking at Cyprexa as a really common one just because it has some sedating properties. It's robust in its ability to affect D2 receptors. So that's usually uh, the target that we're looking for when we're trying to calm psychosis or mania. So atypical antipsychotics to start. And then, of course, Haldol is always a a standby that we use quite a bit. But what do you use in your emergency room? Well, that's a funny question. So, you know, Triperidol used to be kind of the go-to, and then, of course, it stopped being made for a period of time, but now has had a comeback. Mm-hmm. And so in many EDs, I think Triperidol is the go-to because it has fast on mm-hmm. and it doesn't last as long mm-hmm. as Haldol does. And so I was curious to get your thoughts on that compared to the Zyprexa and, and Haldol. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever used Triperidol. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know that we use it very often in the, in the psychiatry world. In inpatient psychiatry on our kind of highest acuity units, we are typically using IM, Haldol, like a combination, you know, the typical Haldol, Benadryl, Ativan combination. And then we'll use sort of IM Zyprexa or obviously PO Zyprexa. Anytime someone's willing to take a PO medicine, we'll offer a PO medicine. But we'll use Zyprexa, and then I think those are the big ones. Sometimes we'll use IM Thorazine if we're not getting much effect from the other two. It's usually kind of our third line, but uh, those are the most common that I've seen used. Yeah, I think I've only used Thorazine for hiccups. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you know, I will say that, you know, from a emergency medicine standpoint, there's been a lot of studies that have compared, you know, mm-hmm. Triperidol, Haldol, and Benzos head-to-head, mm-hmm. and then Geodon also. And, mm-hmm. you know, from that perspective, the fast-on is one of the things that's really important. We know that midazolam and Triperidol, for us, mm-hmm. work the quickest and have kind of the best efficacy with the lowest number of concerning side effects, including respiratory depression. So that's great. So I would say, you know, I would 100% agree, you know, the, in your toolkit, Triperidol, Haldol, Zyprexa, and then those benzos, specifically mm-hmm. midazolam. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, IM wise, you know, we're using between five to 10 of Haldol or mm-hmm. five to 10 of Draperidol. Right. 
Are you giving droperidol primarily IM? Are you giving it IV or? Okay. Yep. So we'll we'll do between five to 10 of IM droperidol and then IV would be five as Mm -hmm. as a good dose for someone who's severely agitated. Now, if you're talking about someone who is in like a psychosis that's not significantly agitated, mm-hmm. then I think you know zytus, you know oral yeah. zytus is is a good go-to yeah. of five to ten. One, so right. I totally agree. Yeah, um, and that's that's very curious to to know what you guys do on the on the psychiatric side, and so it sounds like they align pretty pretty closely. Yeah, I think what's tricky about the Zyprexa piece, the IM Zyprexa for us, usually because in inpatient psychiatry we don't have twenty four hour internal medicine support in-house. And so, you know, there's that black box warning for IM Zyprexa and benzos, like IM benzos. So when we give Zyprexa, we don't feel comfortable oftentimes giving a benzo. So if we, if someone is significantly agitated and we don't believe Zyprexa is going to be enough, we're sort of push towards either Thorazine or the combination, the cocktail of, uh, you know, usually five or 10 of Haldol plus one to two of Ativan. Plus fifty of Benadryl. Yeah, and I, you know, I think what she's speaking of is specifically related to respiratory depression exactly. and the issues that happen with that. And so, you know, in the emergency department and also from EMS, I think the ability to monitor a patient exactly. is very different. And so, exactly. while it's something you want to keep in mind, I think it it still has good safety profile to be able to use both of those, not in severely high doses of on mm-hmm. the benzo side, uh, but a uh, you know Haldol, Zyprexa, or Draperidol with a small amount of benzos if needed. Oh, totally. Your ability to intubate and monitor very different <laughs> from ours. <laughs> um, so you know, one of the other the things that's interesting is. What do we do with these patients once we've now had them in our emergency department for a period of time and can say, okay, well, the drugs have probably worn off. You know, you know, for my particular ED in our system, we wait about 12 hours for meth. And for marijuana, cocaine, it's kind of arbitrary, to be honest. And so what do you do then? Um, and what would your recommendation be do that to, for us to do then to assess whether we should be concerned that there's still an underlying um, psychiatric illness that we're also dealing with? I think it's always going to be reassessing the patient at that whatever hour mark that it is, eight hours, 12 hours, and determining whether they meet inpatient criteria at that point. I think that that's the challenge, right? So if they're still having hallucinations, but they are managing and they are not suicidal, they're not homicidal, then you're sort of in a position where maybe they don't meet criteria for inpatient hospitalization. What do you typically do? It's pretty much that's that's a actually a funny question, but I, I'm funny because I think each system is different, and geographically that makes a difference as well. If you're in a rural versus a a large city, your ability to get a psychiatric assessment is mm. very different. But I would say that uh, most of the time, if we're still concerned, that's when we get either an acute psychiatric service, whether that be you know, a psychiatrist or um, some other uh, health worker to assess and, and give us their interpretation. And so kind of going from there, so now say we have a patient that has been assessed to have this uh, underlying psychiatric illness that should get inpatient requirements, or that sorry, that meets inpatient criteria. 
What happens on the inpatient side? And when do you decide that a patient is then safe to go home? Because that's something that, honestly, I, I have no idea what <laughs> happens when they, when they go to the, to the inpatient world. And it'd be really interesting to, to ha- fully understand um, what are the interventions um, that you guys do to stabilize these patients and when you decide that they can go home. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to speak from like a dual diagnosis unit since we're talking about substance-induced psychosis. Because even at that 12-hour mark, let's say, if they have ongoing symptoms that look psychotic, it doesn't necessarily mean that they do have underlying um, psychiatric illness. So when they get sent over to us, we will do a psychiatric evaluation with either you know a psychiatrist or a PA or an MP that's trained in psychiatry within 24 hours and then and that psychiatric evaluation will review all the all the documentation from the emergency room because oftentimes with these substance induced psychosis situations their presentation in that moment in time that we see them is very different from their presentation in the hospital or in the ER so we'll review all the documentation we'll talk with someone oftentimes they don't have a great recollection of what happened and they'll be poor historians you know I'm totally fine I you know nothing happened I just got, went in there and the ER doc just decided that I should come here. And that's the kind of story we'll often get because they just can't remember their intense intoxication. Can I ask a quick question on that? What are some of the things that you think are helpful from an emergency medicine note in terms of ensuring these particular things are in there for you to to do a, a good job in that initial intake? Yeah. Most of the ER notes that I see are very helpful, actually, primarily because- I'm surprised by that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the ER doctor's note is usually very brief, but what we do get is how many times did they need uh, medications administered and what medications were administered. That's always super helpful because we can- extrapolate that if they got agitation medications, that they were pretty agitated. If they needed restraints in the ER, then that tells us the degree of agitation because most ERs are not going to place restraints unless they absolutely need to place restraints. So vital signs, laboratory studies, all of that is, is incredibly helpful for us to then use in our evaluation. So yeah, someone comes in, we we review those records, and then we try to get a picture for what their explanation is of what's happening. The other thing that we always do, at least at the places that I have worked at, is try to get some kind of collateral. So collateral, um, for those of you who may not know, is is just our word for saying that we'll, we'll have our social worker or someone on the team try to contact a... Uh, someone who knows the patient maybe can fill in the gaps in this history uh, so we understand how concerned we really should be. Usually if someone's coming in for substance-induced psychosis or there's some question of substance-induced psychosis, for them to actually land in the psychiatric hospital, they will most likely be on an M1 hold. So they will have needed to meet criteria for danger to self, imminently suicidal, danger to others, made some homicidal statements or been so agitated or aggressive they punched someone or so on, or someone believed they were gravely disabled, meaning they weren't able to take care of themselves, they weren't able to be coherent enough to give a plan for their discharge. 
And so then we need to evaluate whether that's still accurate. Sometimes when people are intoxicated, oftentimes they will be suicidal. You know, it's so common, for instance, with alcohol that we know when people start to become less intoxicated that in certain cases, they're just really not going to be suicidal anymore. But there's also a lot of people who are suicidal who are more open about their suicidality when they're intoxicated, and then when they are no longer intoxicated, less open about it. And so although we always want to take what a person is saying at face value, I will always tell my patients who I'm evaluating, like, look, you know, I 100% want to believe you. I'm going to move forward as if I do believe you. And I also know that people lie to me all the time, and I don't always know that they do. And so we do have to always put these pieces in place so that we have a more well-rounded view of what exactly was happening. And the vast majority of the time, the story that the person is telling me who was intoxicated at the time isn't and really can't be the full story. And so it really helps to get the additional information so that we can determine whether there is something we need to intervene on now or whether we can step them down to another level of care. So trust but verify. Yes, exactly. Got it. And then how long do many of these patients end up staying in the inpatient side of things um, before they're uh, deemed stable? Is there an average length of time or is that just kind of, it all depends? So the average length of stay on my unit, so the detox dual diagnosis unit, was typically between three and four days. Now, if people are truly just substance-induced psychosis that lasted a little bit longer and so therefore got transferred to us, and then they clear up and we can verify within a day that you know there isn't reason to believe there's ongoing concerns about suicidality, homicidality, whatever, sometimes we'll discharge them within 24 hours. And you know, then some people who have, let's say, underlying psychiatric uh, illness or have been using methamphetamine, let's say, daily, ongoing for many, many years, may need five days, may need a week. It was pretty rare for me to keep anybody on the unit more than 10 days, but not that rare for someone to stay five to seven if they were still pretty symptomatic. And what happens to them when they leave? So I think that's certainly going to depend on the hospital. Uh, Where I've worked, we've always been very focused on discharge planning. So that's where we would have a we would have a team on our unit of nurses, social workers, you know, mental health techs, and uh, physician. And the social worker would be really engaged with. Uh, connecting with support people if they have any, and often, you know, sometimes people don't, and trying to figure out what the plan will be from that standpoint, and then also connecting them in with resources. So we always, always, always discharge people, unless they're going against medical advice, always discharge them with an appointment within seven days. So that's for our Medicaid folks, usually at a mental health center, uh, they'll have an intake appointment within seven days is is a fairly common discharge plan. Sometimes we step them down to intensive outpatient 
So we have, you know, different levels of care in psychiatry. So inpatient psychiatric hospitalization, obviously the highest level. And then we have partial hospitalization programs. We have intensive outpatient programs. I skipped over residential programs, although mental health residential is not something that we have very many of at all in this state. Something that I think uh, we have some bills on the table in the Colorado State Legislature to try to address, which is wonderful. But but we do have residential beds for substance use. So we would step people down who either had insurance uh, to do so or who were interested in, and we could get them a bed into residential uh, or intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, or just an outpatient. We'd always encourage sober support groups, whatever people were open to or interested in. So AA, NA, Life Ring, whatever that would be. We'd try to get people to think through you know, can you make a commitment right now? Can we, you know, get you a list and have you circle some meetings you'll go to? You know, are you willing to commit to 90 meetings in 90 days? You know, to try to get people to really think through a plan before they discharge so that, that we wouldn't get them admitting right back into the hospital. But for substance use disorders, ambivalence is a component of the illness. And so people can be just not sure that they're ready to go down that road. Well, that's been that's very interesting to to hear all of that and the insight. Um, one question I have for you, uh, you know, as we get close to the end of this, is, you know, from a EMS, emergency medicine, internal medicine perspective, what can we do better? I think a couple things come to mind. One is sometimes. I see emergency rooms not taking psychiatric patients seriously. So what that would tend to look like when I was on the inpatient unit, I think my unit had more people who we would have to transition to emergency rooms from inpatient more than any of the others because they were in withdrawal. And it's a medically complex situation that uh, sometimes we aren't able to manage in a 3.7 inpatient psychiatric setting. We don't have access to IVs and we don't have the same level of medical monitoring. We have a nurse 24-7, but people aren't hooked up to any kind of uh, ongoing telemetry or whatever else. And so if I am transferring to an emergency room, it's because I can't handle the level of withdrawal that they are in. Or I've determined that there is something medical going on. So uh, sometimes people would come in, uh, we would be treating them for withdrawal, and we'd realize, look, you know, these labs are so out of whack, either the electrolytes or sometimes they'd be in such severe cirrhosis that we couldn't manage it. Or I would determine it's not withdrawal. Look, their last drink was seven days ago, and I know that because they've been on my unit this whole time. And... I would send them out, and a typical response would be not to fully evaluate them or get labs, but instead to load them up with 270 milligrams of phenobarbital IV and send them back, as if what I was requesting was more treatment for withdrawal um, because they were on my unit. So I think sometimes I know that emergency rooms are so packed, and there's you know so many different competing interests, but I think if anything that piece is one I would make a plea for of, you know, psychiatric patients have medical issues too. And in fact, you know, what the studies show is that psychiatric patients have medical issues more so than sort of your average person coming in. 
So just because they carry a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or they were hospitalized for a substance-induced issue doesn't mean that they don't also have a severe medical-related issue. So it sounds like what you're saying is uh, we need to be as attentive to non-psychiatric issues in psychiatric patients as we are in everyone and every other patient that we get. That's that's really good feedback and, and information that we could all uh, we could all use and and make sure that we take that time uh, and don't just blow things off. One other question I have for you is from the the outpatient world. What do you think is the gap that we have? Why do we keep seeing these same patients circling back from ED to inpatient to back to the ED again? What what are we missing in our state? What a great question. I mean, I want to start by saying part of it is the illness, right? It's that ambivalence. We can't force treatment in people who aren't interested in it. And there are reasons that people use, right? I think that for people who don't have substance use disorders, sometimes it seems inexplicable why people would go back to methamphetamine or go back to alcohol when they have such severe repercussions from them. But the reality is that it's serving some purpose in their life. They get something from it, which is why it's difficult to decide to give that up in some cases. So I think that's the first piece of it. The second piece is that I think to really treat folks with addiction-related issues well, we do need to use a chronic care, a chronic illness model sort of like we do for diabetes or high blood pressure or what have you. And a model like that would include regular visits, would include engaging and interdisciplinary work with different providers. It would include medical treatments that I think sometimes substance use disorders are siloed from. A lot of our substance use disorder programs are non-medical. And so what that means is they're run by therapists, they're run by addiction counselors. And so they don't intersect very easily or well with the medical system. And then we have these laws, which were understandable, that mean that substance use related issues, kind of like HIV, are even more protected in terms of HIPAA. And so what ends up happening is we don't have the ability to share information very easily. And so all of these things are leading to failures in transition of care. So, you know, if they go from the emergency room, you know, maybe they transfer pretty well to inpatient psychiatry, but then inpatient psychiatry transitioning down to a non-medical residential program, and then suddenly they're kind of lost to follow up. And we don't have a way of kind of keeping them in a cycle so that we, if they uh, relapse, we can kick them up a level of care. If they're doing well, we can start to decrease the amount of services that we have. So I think that's a piece of it. And then the other piece is that we, you know, we just don't have enough programs in the state. So, you know, when I was inpatient, that was during the time that they made that change where Medicaid was now covering primary substance. So for the first year and a half that I was working, there was no primary substance coverage. So we would have a lot of battles with Medicaid where they would call and say, look, uh, we're not covering this patient because we believe that their primary issue is meth. It's not the psychosis. And so we would argue about their ability to even receive care. Now, 
Medicaid will cover primary substance, but we don't have the residential programs. We don't have the places to step people down to that we need. So we were always fighting for beds and very rarely getting someone into the level of care that they actually desired. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for all of your insight. I think this will be really helpful to a lot of folks uh, out there who are attempting to do their best in terms of managing patients who have kind of that mixed picture of uh, possible drug-induced psychosis and an underlying psychosis and helping understand what actually happens um, after we manage them and then what are some of the things that we can help fight to, to change. Uh, and, you know, the siloing of care is something that we have a problem with in all aspects of, of healthcare, And obviously it's a problem in the psychiatric world too. So thank yeah. you so much, Nadia. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you.